For me, it's more about which environments have we gone into and where have we created tangible change, as opposed to we have X many employees, our share value has gone up by this much, or we've got you know an office in Nairobi, in Malaysia, in Singapore, because those are not measures of success. It's just how people have typically been ingrained to measure the success of a company. I believe you know young people are our future. The more we invest in them from our own personal experience, the better future we're going to build. And I think sometimes that gets forgotten. So for me, it's very much about what have I learned and how can I give that to them so that they can be part of this bigger, better world that we're all trying to build. Welcome to the Success and Ideas podcast. I'm Richard Myron. This is the podcast where I try to understand success through the experiences of some really compelling individuals. I want to know how the people I'm speaking to define success and how they've achieved it in their lives and work. On this edition, I'm joined by Namisha Brambet. Namisha's a Kenyan-born strategic advisor and founder of Quantum Global Consultants, a leading consulting firm that works with FTSE 100 and Fortune 500 energy companies. Namisha's a self-described sustainpreneur, a term that I'll ask her about more later, but as I understand it, it describes her passion for ingraining environmental sustainability within business. She advocates for, among other things, a highly ambitious goal to support mass tree planting and the reinvestment of company profits into global social impact causes. On top of that, Namisha is a board member of a couple of organisations which are dedicated to fostering success in young people, such as Becoming X, a UK-based organisation, and the Prince's Trust, Prince Charles' long-standing charity, which is involved with initiatives to fund training and educational opportunities in the UK. And if all that weren't enough to keep her busy, Namisha, at the time of recording, is also coping with being a new mum since she gave birth just a few weeks ago to a little girl. Congratulations, Namisha. Thank you so much, Richard. And thank you for having me. Not at all. Now, there's clearly here what I'm seeing here in, in reading about you and in your introduction is this almost sense of evangelism, trying to combine business with a larger goal of environmental sustainability. Just tell me where that comes from. Oh, that's that's a really good question. Um, I think it predominantly stems from my roots where I was raised in Kenya. So, you know, having grown up there in the early 90s, I was very much exposed to obviously the natural beauty of living in Africa, but then also seeing how as we progress as a society, as we progress as economies, how much we were not necessarily destroying the environment, but how much of a role we had to play in it either flourishing or degrading. So I always saw this connection between business and government and society and how that impacts the environment. And also the other way around, how the environment supports us in economies, in you know developing ourselves, our mental health, so many of these facets which kind of came together, especially as a young child, that I think at that time, I probably wouldn't have been able to articulate it as well as I did now. But I think as you grow as an adult, you realize how intrinsically linked all of these things are. And so when I started to study business at, you know, sort of my GCSEs, A-levels, and then on to university, I, I really became a passion to kind of see how can 
business almost be a force for good to support building better economies, to foster better environmental standards, and also the role that business or corporates or even you know small medium enterprises can play in really fixing some of the problems that we've historically created. So that's really where all this passion comes from. I know that you did your dissertation on company culture, how it can influence corporate social responsibility. And also you've worked for some real giants, corporate giants like Shell. And some people will say that, you know, that they, how much of this is, is real, you know, the, the sense of corporate social responsibility and how much of this is, is window dressing? How can you make sure through what you do that it's not window dressing, that it is real? That's also a very good question. And I think one of the one of the most realistic responses I can give to that is, I think people are often jaded by this idea of, you know, when you're socially responsible, it has to be either you are or you aren't, like it's very black and white. And I think Mm -hmm. through my experience, I've learned it's never like that. There's always going to be competing forces within an organization or externally, which mean that the remit within which an individual or a company can really play towards being socially responsible has its either limitations or its benefits. So there's a huge spectrum to play along on this whole discussion. And I think one of the things, the way I've learned to ensure that it's not just window dressing or it's not just, you know, greenwashing or a PR stunt is to really help businesses understand how being socially responsible helps you achieve a better bottom line. Because that's really what business is driving towards, right? Most corporates or most businesses are always looking at what is that number at the end of my balance sheet that's going to make this whole effort worth it. Because you're right, sometimes, you know, some of these CSR schemes are exactly that. They're just schemes. You'll see those programs then eventually fade out very quickly or they don't have uptake or appetite. So what I've learned through my sort of 12 years of doing this is you really have to help the directors, all the way to the people, you know, who even the janitors who are working in these organizations to understand how each of them play a role in delivering that social impact so that it delivers something for the business as well as themselves as the staff or employees, but also society as a whole. You're talking here about creating success in others. I'm also intrigued. You're 34 years of age. You know, you have worked for some very large companies, and I'm sure you would have been successful had you stayed in them, but you didn't. You went off and set up your own consultancy, which is is also proving very successful. My first question is, why? Because that's quite a risk to do that. Yeah. And, you know, what, what drives you? You talked about CSR as a driver and, you know, what you do, but there's also clearly, very clearly, there's a personal drive here in sort of commanding and being, commanding your own fate in work professionally. Yeah. Well, I think I'll answer it in two parts. So the first part is obviously, why did I go and set up on my own, right? And I think what I started to find sort of halfway into my career, when you are working for somebody else as a consultant in a, under their umbrella, it is very much influenced by what their version of the world is, right? So you're always responding to that. And not that that's ever a bad thing. It just depends on who you're working for and whether you're you're attitudes and thoughts align. And what I was starting to find was a lot of people that I was working for were not willing to pave the pathway 
along these things that I talk about so passionately the way I was. So if I was to sit down with one of my previous directors and say, look, we really should start thinking about having a sustainability practice or a CSR practice because in six years time, that's going to matter. And I would always be up against either old school thinking or, you know, a different mindset from somebody who's obviously generationally different to me. And so for me, I always felt like I was hitting a wall. So I I kind of decided, well, if I keep looking for somewhere where they're going to either accept my ideas or I have to keep climbing a hill to help them understand what I would like to do and then go and convince a client to do the same thing. That's two battles I have to fight. I'd rather just fight the one, which is go and find the client who's ready to do the work. So that's where the whole idea of setting up on my own came from. And then answering the other part of your question, it's, I don't think it's it's daunting or anything like that, but I think when you're passionate about something and you really see where the solution to the problem is, it's it's more about just how can I get somebody else to see that and deliver. And when you deliver the results for that person, whether it's the client or, you know, just the CEO or the C-suite, that's kind of the pat on your back and affirmation that, yeah, I know I'm down the right path. For me, it's always been about having the knowledge and knowing how to implement it, less so than what does that mean for my own personal success. I think the success has just kind of come along the way because of being determined about delivering the knowledge and the solutions. So, you know, a lot of people I know who I work with, they always say you're very solution focused. It's not really success focused. The success kind of just follows me as a result of that. But it's really about solving problems for me. And and I think when I do that, the success naturally comes along with it. Now, I mentioned in the introduction there that you were born in Kenya of Asian origin mm-hmm. and you came to the UK to study the latter part of your your high school education here. How much does that background about being a newcomer in this country and also coming from this specific background because Asians in in Africa were also a minority, are also a minority, a highly successful minority as well. How much has that informed how you've gone about your career? I think if you had asked me that question when I first moved or even seven years ago, I'd have probably said, oh, it's just it's just part of the you know migrant experience. But the more I've thought about it, I realized that I think it's a genetically ingrained kind of trait in us as Asians, especially those who've you know had family who've historically three generations before us had to move countries and set up again. So my grandfather did it back in the 1930s. And then, you know, my father was born in Africa itself, in what we now call Tanzania. And you just grow up with it. You've grown up around it. It's it's not necessarily something you're actively taught. You just see it around you all the time. This almost not, I wouldn't say it's a fight to survive. It's just almost a desire to thrive wherever you're thrown into whatever situation. And so, you know, even when I moved to England, Traditionally, you know, most people would probably be a bit daunted by the thought of moving to a different country. I was really excited. I was like, oh, this is a it's going to be a new adventure. I'm going to meet new people. I'm going to make, you know, new friends. So for me, it was always an exciting thought. It wasn't anything that was scary. And for for myself, I've noticed that about 
my own personalities, I'm always happy to throw myself into those sorts of situations because I enjoy that experience of the newness of things or the, you know, sometimes uncertainty. I know uncertainty sometimes makes people really nervous. I was yes. going to say, I, I, I was going to say, you're, you're doing all the things. People tend to like to not Stay move country, from. not to set up new businesses, yeah. but you're like, let me add it kind of thing. Yes, exactly. And I, and that's what I said. I think it's the environment that you've grown up around, right? Like, and, and, and everybody within the family almost treats those sorts of situations as a sense of adventure. Like you're always going to learn something new from it. My, my mom always used to tell me, she was like, look, nothing bad is going to happen. The worst is you learn a shed load of lessons from it, which will only shape you to be a bit better person. So that has stuck with me from day one. For me, I love being a pioneer in that respect of always paving new pathways and really creating space for other people to be able to look at me and go, yeah, if she can do it, so can I. Which I think brings us very neatly on to some of your, and I, I'm not, I can't turn this extracurricular because you seem to, you know, what I mean by that is on top of your, your role in the company, you work with these various charities. I'm assuming that this also comes from a place of you want to translate that success or passion that you have into other people. Let me ask you something about, first of all, the, the two charities that I mentioned that you're involved in, Becoming X and the Princess Trust. Why those two? What is it about them that you felt what they did accorded with what you think and what you want to see achieved? Yeah, I mean... It goes back to the previous question, right? Like, what was my young person's experience and how did I thrive and really make something for myself? And as I reflect on the traits I had, the skills I learned, I then look at kind of the youth of today. And even though some would perceive it as there's a lot of opportunity for young people today, it's quite a spectrum. And I feel like sometimes there really isn't. So working with Becoming X the foundation or working with the Prince's Trust is very much about supporting young people and finding all sorts of opportunities to not only survive, but to thrive. And the reason I say that is I was very fortunate to, like I said, be throwing myself in those situations where I would learn more, do more, be more. Whereas I know that, like you said, Richard, a lot of young people don't probably have that type of confidence or they've not probably had the best start in life, which means that they could feel encouraged to go and pave a new pathway for themselves. Or maybe they just don't have the right tools or skills to be able to do those things. And so for myself, it's about bringing all those things I learned in my earlier days in my formative life to these sorts of environments where I can support those young people no matter what kind of start they've had in life to show them that you can really create something for yourself regardless of what background you come from. And that's why Becoming X and the Prince's Trust mean so much to me because I believe, you know, young people are our future. The more we invest in them from our own personal experience, the better future we're going to build. And I think sometimes that gets forgotten. So for me, it's very much about what have I learned and how can I give that to them so that they can be part of this bigger, better world that we're all trying to build. What do you think is lacking in how we seek to educate young people in our highly technological society today? 
That's a really good question. I think it's it's an awareness, firstly, that the the systems we currently utilize to educate young, not just young people, all people, are a little bit redundant. They don't really serve the society we're actually building, right? Because I remember when I was doing one of my A-level classes, it was a business studies class. And one of the teachers was talking about like finance and mortgages and borrowings. And I understood it because, like I said, you know, I came from this entrepreneurial background. So I was always listening to my family and parents talk about it. But it surprised me so much that so many of the students in there in that classroom didn't know what a mortgage was or they didn't understand what you know interest meant or what does inflation mean. Even from a technological point of view, we don't teach them enough about how we can adapt with technology or how we can utilize technology in, in different ways. So there's there's this big gap that's kind of becoming bigger and bigger if it's not addressed in time to really service young people to to have the skills they need to survive in this world that we're building, not the world that we currently live in right now. And it's not just about technology. I also think it's just about general personal skills, right? Like we're so subject focused when we look at curriculums in schools or universities. We don't talk about the things that, you know, you're kind of running this podcast for leadership skills, like the soft skills or aptitudes that we have, personality traits, all those things that are cultivated from experiences outside of the classroom that actually matter so much more to how we how well we do in life. Like people will say to me, you're such a natural leader. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like that because I spent a lot of time outdoors doing like hikes and going on mountain climbing with groups of people and orienteering. It, it didn't really come from like things that I learned in the classroom. So we really need to have a much more holistic approach to how we're, and I even think the word education itself is delimiting, right? It's how are we just upskilling and really supporting the youth or you know young people of today to be whoever they want to be and it doesn't have to follow a linear curriculum yeah could they learn more just by being outdoors most of the time it's so interesting i mean and personally speaking i have two daughters who are teenage daughters and they say to me you know we don't know all this stuff that you talk about if funnily enough you know like mortgages you know we don't learn that exactly and my elder daughter loathes mathematics because she associates it with sitting in a classroom and having to learn certain things and she struggles with it yeah and yet she wants to understand what she sees as the cogs that sort of turn will turn her her life there's a dissociation I think between those absolutely, two things amongst absolutely. some people and I'm sure like even one of the best examples I can give from my personal experience was I, I was like her I hated maths because it was always about algebra and a plus b equals c and I'm like what does that have to do with like you know what we we learn or do on an everyday basis and then I, I remember as a young kid I was like I really want to be a vet because I love animals and then somebody told me well, you have to be really good at maths if you want to get into veterinary school. And that completely put me off it. So are we really equipping kids in the right way by even the way we teach them things? It's not necessarily what we teach them, but it's also how we teach them. So there's just, I think the education system really needs a big reboot. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know when or how that's going to happen, but this is why you know, the, these charities that I work with, whether it's Becoming X or Princess Trust matters so much because it's about building that platform that allows other people to see how the you know young people can really develop outside of the classroom, outside of the school system, outside of university. What are your ambitions for your work? 
you set up Quantum Global Consultants a few years ago, and you're obviously growing the business. What would be the definition of success for that business and for you? For the business, you know, like you so clearly identified, the business is very focused on working with energy companies. So for us, our big, big hairy goal, as I like to call it, is to support a number of energy companies in this transition to a green economy. We know how to take organizations from the traditional model of generating power and supplying it to, you know, everyday consumers to how do we make them greener businesses. And that's not just in their operations, but actually how can they be part of this big global reset or, you know, like what Boris Johnson calls, let's fix everything with a greener society and to help achieve that, you know, big 2030 target of 100% renewable power. But what do you want for Quantum Global? How do you see this? Do you want it to be a sort of a company that straddles continents? You know, tell me your aspirations for it. Just funny. I've never thought of it like that. I've never thought of it, oh, you know, we have to have a global reach or we have to have like X many employees. For me, it's more about which environments have we gone into and where have we created tangible change? So if we could reflect back on it in 10 years, we could actually look at and really pinpoint, yeah, you know, in 2022, the UK shifted from 50% to 60% renewable power, and we were responsible for 5% of that because of the strategic work we did with the C-suite. Or, you know, in Africa, we helped mobilize, you know, 20% of the renewable power capacity by the work we did. So that's how we measure it in in our sense. For us, growth is about the impact we're creating in society as opposed to we have X many employees, our share value has gone up by this much, or we've got, you know, a, a office in Nairobi and, you know, Malaysia and Singapore. Because, and this is just my personal experience, those are not measures of success. If you really think about it, they're not really measures of success. It's just it's just how people have typically been ingrained to measure the success of a company. It's like, oh, how many offices do you have? How many employees do you have? But for me, it's very much, what did you go and actually materially deliver and change in society as a result of your knowledge or experience? And that, to me, is success. I've got to ask you, you are living the experience of a working mother. As we speak, your daughter, as you said to me before, is being looked after on the other side of the house by your mum. She's just a couple of weeks old and you're running this company. I think there are, as I read about and I see in my wife, you know, these tensions of trying to do everything, trying to be a great mum. You're you're literally, you're living it at the moment <laughs> as we speak. That also must be pretty daunting. And well, actually, let me ask you the question. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it seems to me an incredibly hard deal that women in your position are being faced with, which is to try and succeed in being great mums and succeed in business and you know, the doors are opening and so on. Tell me your your take on this. How, how are you dealing with this? Well, first and foremost, I try not to put pressure on myself to be the perfect mum, right? And I, and I think that's also a social construct. Like women have just a lot of pressure generally to be perfect at everything because that's kind of what's expected of us. So the first thing I always do is let myself off the hook. So I'm like, I'm not going to be the perfect mom. As long as my baby's fed and it's 
alive and it's breathing and it's happy <laughs> and it's not broken. That's good. That's success for me. Because, you know, that's that's an it's a whole new world to me. I still it's a new experience. I still don't understand it. But the things I do understand or where I do have a stronger experience in, yes, there I'll probably have more pressure on myself to go, listen, Amisha, you know this, you know how to do this. So the the bar is set a little bit higher. And I think that's how at least I manage the levels of success and how I juggle things in my life is really setting yourself either a standard or a marker and not putting obscene amount of pressure on yourself to then achieve it. Like one of the things I'm also learning to be very good at is if I don't hit a milestone or I don't do something that I thought I would achieve, I try not to beat myself up, you know, because that's also something women are prone to doing. It's like we didn't get the birthday cake right. We didn't get that contract with this client. This person was not happy with the presentation. And I think one of the things my dad actually taught me really well was you're never going to be great at everything. People from the outside, when they look at you, like when you were like rattling off my list of achievements, I was like, wow, I've never even thought of myself like that. Because you either can't or you shouldn't, because otherwise you're kind of just putting your own self on a pedestal and it's a very long way to fall down from there. So I think you set different benchmarks for the things that you know you can do versus the things you'd like to do and 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 kind of gauge where you are with each of those things and pace yourself. Like that's what I've learned. You can't be brilliant at everything. And you've just got to let yourself off the hook from time to time to just recognize you're still human at the end of the day and you're just never going to be perfect at everything. So yeah, I, I give myself a break more often than I tell people I do. I'm very okay sometimes to just put everything aside for a weekend and go, I'm not even going to think about any of these things that matter and just like veg out, watch Netflix. I'm still a human at the end of the day, right? That's a very healthy thing to do. I'm, I'm yeah. pleased to know that you do veg out yeah. and watch Netflix. Yes. Namisha, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And thank you. I wish you well, particularly, obviously, with the Aria, that's your daughter's yes, name, isn't it, Aria? That's it. Yeah, yes. Thank you for joining me on the Success and Ideas podcast. Thank you for having me, Richard. I really appreciate it. So that was a fascinating discussion there with Namisha Brambat. And I think the thing which I focus most in on, and I find so compelling about her, is there's this seeming absence of fear where many people would see fear she sees opportunity and she talks about in a way how this partly comes from what her mother said to her as as a child but also clearly the person that she is that even if there were to be failure it's not failure it's learning a lesson in life and there's something about that about this woman who is just 34 years of age and seeing what she's achieved through the, I think the power of being very positive and being willing to take risks in moving country and in leaving large businesses to set up her own, that I think is a, is a lesson for people who want to achieve success. Namisha Brambat, a fascinating story. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do listen to others in the series. I've talked to a range of people, including the man who was Boris Johnson's head of communications when he was mayor of London, a person described as the Mark Zuckerberg of Norway, a woman who learnt about going onto the boards of, of charities as a child sitting around the kitchen table with her father and her sister, 
a range of what I hope are very fascinating insights into what is success. And also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Richard Myron. The producer on this edition is Anouk Mie, and it's been an Earshot Strategies production. All the best. Listener.